continuing in hermeneutics, and we have to finish up from last week because we were talking about bad hermeneutics, and I wasn't able to finish last week, so we have to finish up with Chris, the Christocentric hermeneutics. So this is a bad hermeneutics part 2.5. And I just want to review and, and go over what is the Christocentric hermeneutic, and then I have seven reasons why you should not use the Christocentric hermeneutic, and then we'll get into our topic for this morning. The Christocentric hermeneutic is really popular, especially when you talk about reform circles, and it's really popular because, well, it says that every passage should be about Jesus, and that just kind of feels right. If I can get the text to talk about Jesus, this must be a good thing. And they would say that Jesus is described, discussed, or referenced in every passage, even when he is not directly mentioned or he is not the actual topic of the text. And they actually use a bad hermeneutic to get there. They use a bad method of interpretation to get there. They use proof texting, and they take one or two verses, and they force those verses to mean something that they don't actually mean. Let me give you an example. John 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness to me. And the people who embrace this hermeneutic say, look, all of Scripture bears witness to Jesus. Every passage is about Jesus. Or Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They would point to these two passages and say, See, all of the scriptures deal with Jesus, and we should make Jesus the topic of every passage we go to. But neither of these passages actually teach that. In John, Jesus is not talking about how to interpret the Bible. John, in John, Jesus is talking to Pharisees who think that by obeying the law, by obeying every command in Scripture, they can somehow earn their way into heaven. And Jesus' point is, well, that's not the point of the law. That's not the point of the Scriptures. It's not for you to learn how to save yourself. The point is that you would learn that you need a Savior. In Luke, he's making a summary statement when he says all the scriptures, he's not saying each and every verse discusses Jesus. He's saying in all parts of the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Christocentric hermeneutic requires that you read the New Testament back into the Old, that you essentially read the Bible backwards. You start in the New Testament and you work your way back. And what you find in the New Testament, you are to read it into the Old Testament. You don't have to take my word for it. Richard Hayes, in his book, Reading Backwards, Figurative Christology and the Fourfold Gospel Witness, said this, a gospel-shaped hermeneutic, finding the gospel everywhere in the Old Testament, necessarily entails reading backwards, reinterpreting Israel's scriptures in light of the story of Jesus. Such a reading is necessarily a figural reading, a reading that grasps patterns of correspondence between temporarily distinct events so that these events freshly illumine each other. Take the New Testament and figuratively read it back into the Old, even if the text doesn't actually say it, even if it's not in the text and the original author had no intention of you learning that from that text. The true meaning of the Old Testament is not found until you take the New Testament and use the New Testament as the lens with which you interpret the Old. This results in the text of the Old Testament having multiple meanings. It means different things depending on who is picking up the lens of the New Testament and examining the old. Again, don't take my word for it, Richard Hayes. This means that for the evangelist, the meaning 
of the Old Testament text was not confined to the human author's original historical setting or to the meaning that could have been grasped by the original readers. Rather, Scripture was given was a complex body of text given to the community of God who had scripted the whole biblical drama in such a way that it has multiple senses. Some of these senses are hidden, so that they come into focus only retrospectively. Christocentric hermeneutic demands that the text has more than one meaning. The text cannot mean only what it says. It has to mean something other than that. There is a meaning other than what the original author meant. Because you have the original author, let's say Moses, and then you have the New Testament, which is used to interpret the Old, and you have that new meaning, but every single person who uses the New Testament in, in the Old is going to interpret it differently and come to a different conclusion on what the text means. You see how this is very closely related to the allegorical hermeneutic? Just reading into the text what you want it to mean. I want to give you seven problems with the Christocentric hermeneutic. Now, I have to tell you, these are not mine. These are Dr. Clausen's, and they're good, so they're copied and pasted. They are Dr. Clausen's, but I, I want to share these with you. First problem with using the Christocentric hermeneutic. The Christocentric hermeneutic, in its effort to get straight to Christ, can convey impatience with seemingly mundane or earthly details communicated by many texts when taken at face value. If my goal is just to get to Jesus, and I want to make the text talk about Jesus— there's some details in the Old Testament, I just don't need to do that. If I'm in the story of Noah and the flood and I want to talk about Jesus, I don't really need to describe a whole lot about the ark. There's a lot of parts of that story I just don't need to mention because it doesn't help me get to Jesus, and so I can just pass over it and get to the good part. Two, the Christocentric hermeneutic can breed a dangerous ignorance among today's readers about what was actually written and why it was written for its original audience. The importance of original historical context is inevitably minimized. If all my goal is, is to get to Jesus, and I'm there to make the story of David and Goliath about Jesus, then the historical context of David and Goliath doesn't really matter. And if I'm going to teach that, and my goal is to teach that about Jesus, I can pick and choose what parts of that story I'm going to use. And the rest of it is irrelevant, because I can, I'm just there to make it about Jesus. And the historical context isn't necessary. And the people who are going to listen to that teaching are not going to learn the historical context, and they're not going to learn why that text was actually written. Was David and Goliath written to teach about Jesus? No. Third, the Christocentric hermeneutic can diminish other themes of Scripture as unimportant. We've actually had this in this church. We've had people come to this church and demand that every text, this was several years ago, every text should be about Jesus. And so we brought up the simple fact, what about the passages that deal with the Father and describe the Father? Should we make those passages about Jesus too and minimize the role of the Father in salvation? How about the Holy Spirit? If every passage is supposed to be about Jesus, should we take the passages on the Holy Spirit and turn them into passages about Jesus? Should we minimize those passages just so we can talk about Jesus? How about passages that describe the Christian walk and what you are to do? Oftentimes what they'll tell you is they just want you to remind them who they are in Christ, and they don't want you to bring up the warnings, the commands. They don't want you to talk about sin. Just remind me who I am in Jesus, point me back to Jesus, and that's it. 
Should we minimize the areas that talk about the Christian walk so we can talk more about Jesus? Fourth, the Christocentric hermeneutic leads to the deprecation of the original writer's intention. That means pushing it aside. And even of the original writer himself, by expecting that texts must always speak about Christ if they are to be useful to the Christian, authors who pen texts which do not deal directly with Christ when taken at face value can be considered less spiritual or useful for not writing about more exalted truths. If I go into the Old Testament and I find passages that just I just can't seem to figure out how to get to Jesus from this passage, what's the point of talking about it? The goal of Bible study according to this hermeneutic is for me to get to Jesus, and this passage doesn't help me get to Jesus. There's no point in being there. I can just skip over it. This isn't what we're here to learn about. We're here to learn about Jesus, and this text doesn't help with that. Fifth one, the Christocentric hermeneutic leads easily to spiritual shaming. Proponents of this method consider interpreters who do not agree with them as weaker brothers at best or heretics at worst, despite their profession of a deep love for Christ and his atonement. When we had people come in and tell us we should practice this hermeneutic, they actually told us we weren't a true church because we did not force Jesus into every single passage. Does that mean everyone who uses this hermeneutic does that? No, but that is one of the dangers of the hermeneutic. Sixth one, the Christocentric hermeneutic tends towards allegorization, which in turn leads to increased subjectivity interpretation and even a reader-response hermeneutic. Can an interpretation ever be considered incorrect so long as it asserts something which glorifies Christ? If the goal of all hermeneutics is just for me to get to Jesus, then are you ever going to tell me I'm wrong when I take a passage and I twist it out of its context and I make it about Jesus? Can you ever tell me I'm wrong? No, because one, that's the whole goal of the hermeneutic, and two, you have no means to do that because Jesus isn't found in that text to begin with. And so there is no real true meaning of the text. It means whatever I want it to mean as long as I'm talking about Jesus. Seventh, last one. The Christocentric hermeneutic leads to an obscuring of those texts which do not speak directly about Christ, making Bible interpretation more difficult for average believers. With the increase in allegorization comes increasing complexity interpretation. Special skills are needed to get, out, get Christ out of the genealogies of Chronicles or the census details of numbers or the measurements and materials of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 40. This is the same problem you had when we talked about allegory and allegorizing the text. Because the meaning of the text is not found in the text itself, that means most people are never going to get to the meaning of the text. And especially when you get to passages like the genealogies, the only way you would be able to get meaning out of that text, you would be able to get Jesus out of that text, is if you had a whole lot of seminary training and you can put a whole lot of effort into it, and you really have to work really hard to try to get Jesus out of that passage. And it takes the, the meaning of the text and it pushes it outside of your reach. Just like they do with the Roman Catholic Church, it's all allegorized, we define what it means, it makes it impossible for everyone to read the text and understand it. And then when you have all these people saying it means different things, the person who just picks up their Bible and reads it is totally confused because now they have to read David and Goliath and they look at that and they say, well, I don't see Jesus in this passage, but this pastor's over here telling me it's about Jesus. You see the confusion that comes? Okay, any questions on bad hermeneutics, Christocentric hermeneutic? Sometimes, 
He said that it, it sounds like some people are trying to take God out of it and trying to make man center sometimes. But there are faithful brethren who use this and who genuinely believe this is the right thing to do. And so we don't want to lump them all in the same, into the same box. Yes, sir. Yeah, it, it's looking for Jesus in every passage. And um, Spurgeon used to say, look, I can get to Jesus from every passage. That's an application of the text. I can go from David and Goliath and teach that passage. And from that passage and the principles in that passage, I can get to Jesus. I can go from the story of Noah and the flood and how God judged the world for sin, and yet he saved eight people. And I can get from that story and the principles of that story to Jesus. What the Christocentric hermeneutic does that's wrong, it says, the story of Noah and the flood is not about Noah and the flood, it's about Jesus, and it completely overrides that text. That's where we go wrong. All right? All right, any other questions before we move on to our topic for the day? All right, our topic for the day. We're not doing bad hermeneutics still. The necessity of getting it right. Why should you care about hermeneutics? Why should you care about getting your interpretation right? Why does it even matter? Isn't that just something pastors worry about? I have five reasons why right hermeneutics are necessary. Five reasons right hermeneutics are necessary. First, right right interpretation of Scripture is necessary for any study of theology. There is no true study of theology with a bad hermeneutic. Scriptures are filled with warnings. Warnings about people who do not believe in God. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 1, The wicked fool says in his heart, There is no God. The fool is an unbeliever. They deny his existence. They refuse to search after him. Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. The Bible says it is foolish to deny God, to deny his existence, to, to deny the God that has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in his creation. You can see Psalm 19. You look at the universe, you look at the world around you, and you see the complexity of it and the beauty of it and the organization, and you say, there's no way this happened by accident. But that revelation, the revelation that you find in creation, isn't enough for you to actually have a relationship with God. It provides general details about God, but it doesn't provide propositional truth to where you can actually grow in a relationship. What does that revelation do? The revelation you receive in creation, what does it do? It condemns. It's only enough to bring condemnation. Uh, Romans 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The creation merely robs you of the excuse of saying, Well, I didn't know there was a God. I never read the Bible, so I couldn't tell. No, you have no excuse. And you are condemned when you ignore it. But that revelation, because it's not propositional, that is, it has no words to it, it's often misunderstood. And we saw that when we talked about Hugh Ross in Genesis 1. We saw that when we talked about psychology and how they view man. When you examine creation, there's no words to interpret. There's nothing to limit your interpretation. And you can get it wrong. This revelation that you get in creation is not enough 
to draw you to God. It's not enough to have a relationship with him. It's not enough for you to be saved. So how can you come to a true knowledge of an incomprehensible God? A God so infinite and so vast, he's beyond anything you can think of. If the creation doesn't do that, how is that possible? Divine revelation found? Scripture. And I agree. And that's the point. If the only way that you have to have a real relationship with God is through this text, then how you interpret this text determines how well you can have a relationship with God. God revealed himself by writing through men. And he wrote through men what he desired for you to know about him, his nature, his will. And it is his own self-revelation that is the meaning of the text. That is what he wants you to get from the text. But if you don't have the right meaning of the text, you don't have his revelation. You don't have any knowledge of God, true knowledge of God. If you have a bad hermeneutic, the revelation of God is not available to you. You can't get to it. Why not? Well, you remember from our first class? Remember way back when, like six weeks ago? Our very first class, we talked about the gap between you and the text. And there was four things that distance you from the meaning of the text. Anybody remember what they were? Time. Language. Culture. One more. Geography. All four of those create an infinite gap between you and the meaning of the text. Let me just give you an example. Language. Now, I could ask you, if you how many of you can read this, but I want to go the other direction. How many of you cannot read this? Raise your hand. Yeah. By the way, you start on the right side of the screen and work your way. Language is a big gap, isn't it? If you don't bridge that gap, this text is useless to you. It means nothing. If you don't have a right hermeneutic that helps you understand that, you don't get to know about the God who created the universe. That's Genesis 1.1. It prevents you from understanding the text. But if you cannot rightly understand the text... How do you know the God revealed in the text? How can you know the God that the text reveals? You can't. You need a hermeneutic that'll overcome this. And even if you resolve the language barrier, let's say you got your NASB or your LSB, you still have those three other issues of culture, time, and geography that are going to distort and skew your understanding of the text and warp your understanding of the divine revelation in the text. And the conclusions you come to about God will be wrong. You won't have truth, you'll have lies. You will not know about the God of the universe, you'll know about a false God created by your own misunderstandings. And the bad hermeneutics that we've looked at over the last two weeks do not bridge that gap. They do nothing about the gap. They push the meaning of the text further and further away from you. And in so doing, they push the God of the text further and further away from you. That's what institutions like the Roman Catholic Church do when they distort the meaning of the text. They deprive people of the revelation of God. There is no true theology outside of the propositional revelation of Scripture. And the only way you can get to that revelation is through a right understanding of the text, interpreting the text correctly. 
when you understand what the author intended, and by the author I mean both the human and the divine, together had one intention when they wrote the text. If you have not obtained the author's intention, his, the author's meaning, you do not have divine revelation. You have your opinion, you have speculation, or you have, in some cases, just fabrication. Just making it up. That might be a form of theology, but it is not Christian theology. Our theology comes from a right interpretation of the text. Uh, Bernard Rahm, This is the primary and basic need of hermeneutics, to ascertain what God has said in sacred scripture, to determine the meaning of the word of God. There is no prophet to us if God has spoken and we do not know what he has said. Therefore, it is our responsibility to determine the meaning of what God has given to us in sacred scripture. You can't do theology without it, without a right hermeneutic. Uh, Terry Milton said of hermeneutics, without it, systematic theology or dogmatics could not be legitimately constructed and would in fact be essentially impossible for the doctrines of Revelation can only be learned from a correct understanding of the oracles of God. Your understanding of justification by faith comes from a right hermeneutic. Your understanding of theology proper comes from a right hermeneutic. Your understanding of the nature of Christ comes from a right hermeneutic. That's all theology. And if you don't have a right hermeneutic, you're going to come to a very different conclusion on every one of those subjects. First reason you need a right hermeneutic? They're necessary for any study of theology. Second reason, right hermeneutics are necessary for all Christian ministry. All Christian ministry requires a right hermeneutic. Name any area of Christian ministry, you know, like evangelism, and take out a good hermeneutic, substitute a bad hermeneutic, and you'll get something very different than Christian evangelism. When Jesus taught on evangelism, how did he describe it in Mark 4? He said the sower goes out and he sows. What is he sowing? Sowing seed? What's the seed? Word of God. It's in Mark 4, verse 14. The sower sows the word. The evangelist doesn't go out and just speak his own opinion. He takes Scripture and he explains it to people. And he interprets Scripture for people and he gives them the Word of God and he explains Christ and salvation to them from the Scriptures. The Spirit works through his Word. This is what Jesus did, Luke 24, verse 27. He was telling his disciples about the fact that he has to die. Luke 24, verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This, is, this was the evangelistic work of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul went into a town, oftentimes he went straight to the synagogue. Acts 17, verse 2, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and setting before them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. There's no evangelism without Scripture, without a right understanding of Scripture. Or take apologetics. Some people say, well, when you do apologetics, what you need to do is set aside the Scriptures and go use science and go use the things other people will agree with. Bad idea. Listen to Pastor Michael's class on apologetics. We don't set aside Scripture when confronting other religions. Acts 18, verse 28, speaking of Apollos, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
his apologetic was based solely on his understanding of the text of Scripture. And if he's going to use Scripture in that way, that assumes he came to a right understanding of the text, that he used a good hermeneutic or take corporate worship. How can we worship as a body in a way that is pleasing to God if we don't understand the text of Scripture, if we have a bad hermeneutic? 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy, verse 15, he says, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. We use Scripture to determine how we worship, to determine what worship is appropriate and acceptable to God. And what is the one, th- one of the main things we're called to do in worship? Read Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And the exhortation and teaching there is all based in what? Scripture. They're all founded on a right hermeneutic and understanding the text correctly. It's not just that we're to read the Scriptures. It's to be preached. The primary work of pastors and elders is to engage with the text of Scripture and bring it to bear on the consciences of those who are listening. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Bring the Scriptures to bear on their conscience, that they would turn from their sin, that they would trust in Christ. Why do we do that? Lives depend on it. Eternal souls depend on the preaching of the word. It is through the preaching of the word that souls are saved. Romans 10, verse 13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And what is the context of that preaching? Is that preaching made up? Is that preaching done by just, I look at the text and I come up to whatever conclusion I want? No, Romans 10, verse 17. So then faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We can look at every other area of ministry, and you'll see all of them are dependent upon your right understanding of the text of Scripture. And if you don't have a right hermeneutic, you cannot engage in true Christian ministry. Terry Milton, the great work of the Christian ministry is to preach the word, and that most important labor cannot be effectually done without a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures and skill in the interpretation and application of the same. Without good hermeneutics, excuse me, without good hermeneutics, every ministry of the church devolves into idolatry and confusion. You want to see a church that's falling apart? Find a church where the leadership has a horrible hermeneutic and the text has no real meaning and there will be confusion and chaos. If you want to be engaged in Christian ministry at any level, you need to be able to understand what the text means. Otherwise, it's not Christian ministry. You'll never be able to discern true theology. You'll never be able to understand what worship is pleasing. And you'll never be able to figure out what is true and what is false when it comes to God. That brings us to our third one. Right hermeneutics are necessary to avoid theological error. You might say it this way. Right hermeneutics is what distinguishes between what God has said and what man has said. How do you determine what is false doctrine? How do you affirm what is right theology? You do that by interpreting Scripture, by using a right hermeneutic, going to the text, and showing what the text means. Bernard Rom, we need to know the correct method of biblical interpretation so that we do not confuse the voice of God with the voice of man. And when you use the bad hermeneutics we've talked about over the last two weeks, a lot of times what you're getting is 
somebody's opinion. It's not coming from the text. When you derive the meaning from something other than the text of Scripture, you end up replacing what God has said with what man has said. Rom gives a few examples of where bad hermeneutics have had some really devastating effects. People use bad hermeneutics to justify their sin. Not just to justify it, not just to say, well, this is okay. They use a bad hermeneutic to turn around and say, God is okay with my sin. That God approves of my sin. You may have heard this. The patriarchs practice polygamy. Ergo, I can practice polygamy. Bad hermeneutic. The Old Testament says witches should be put to death. Therefore, we should be putting to death witches today. I heard a quote-unquote pastor today, not today, but recently, who's doing ministry right now, say we should kill homosexuals. Why? Because that's what the Old Testament says. Bad hermeneutic. Scriptures say that women will experience pain in childbirth, therefore women should not be allowed to alleviate their pain while giving birth. I don't think any of the ladies want to embrace that hermeneutic, do you? That's a bad hermeneutic. Here's a real popular one. The Old Testament taught tithing. Ergo, you should tithe. And then they tell you the exact percentage that you're supposed to give. Never mind the fact that the New Testament doesn't say that, and they have a different percentage than what the Old Testament had, but bad hermeneutic. Bernard Rom, we need to know hermeneutics thoroughly, if for no other reason than to preserve us from the folly and errors of faulty principles of understanding God's Word. This is how you protect yourself from bad theology. This is how you protect yourself from people posing as pastors, teaching you things that are not true. The Bible knows nothing about an ignorant mass of sheep blindly and willfully believing everything a pastor says. It knows nothing of an infallible magisterium that is the sole interpreter of Scripture that is able to bind the conscience of all Christians without objection and without validation. It knows nothing about that. It knows nothing about a congregation that sits there with their mind empty and just accepts everything that's being said. Jesus warned of false teachers. Matthew 7, verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware. The word refers to being alert, being on guard. When lexicon said it means to be in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. Well, if you take the Catholic Church's teaching, you just sit there quietly and listen. Don't bring your Bible to church. Don't look at it. You can't interpret it for yourself. Just trust us. That's not what Jesus said. If you don't know Scripture, if you can't interpret it for yourself, how are you going to beware of false teachers? Paul told the Ephesians that the false teachers will come in when Paul leaves. They'll come in when, they, when, the guy, when the guy they're scared of, Paul, they'll come in when he's gone. And they think the congregation is helpless and they can't do anything for themselves. That's when the false teachers show up. Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock like wolves. False teachers love to go after people who have no defense. A Christian who lacks a sound understanding of hermeneutics, who cannot understand or engage with the text of Scripture, is a sheep ready for slaughter. You're defenseless when the false teacher shows up and spews his or her lies. Believers in Scripture were not ignorant, and they were not helpless. They knew how to understand the text. Think of Ezra 
Ezra 7, it describes Ezra as being learned in the words of the commandments of Yahweh in his statutes to Israel. Remember Mary? Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a young girl, she's told that she's going to have a child. She becomes pregnant. She goes over to see Elizabeth. And in her Magnificat, what does she do? This young teenage girl extemporaneously cites Psalm 103, verse 17. Psalm 107, verse 9. Anybody know those passages off the top of your head? She rightly understood that the child in her womb was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. She had theology. She knew the Bible. She knew how to interpret it and how to apply it. We talked about Apollos earlier. Remember, he's the one who mightily contradicted the Jews. It says of him in Acts 18, verse 24, he was mighty in the Scriptures. And that's how he was able to powerfully refute the Jews, that we saw that verse earlier. Because he knew Scriptures. Think of Acts 7 and Stephen. He's called before the judges, and he gives a history of the Jewish people. Off the top of his head. And he goes through the history given in Scripture of the Jewish people. As his defense. He knew his he knew the Bible. He knew Scripture. And speaking of people who um, don't sit back and just let the teacher teach whatever he wants without checking their Bible, remember the Thessalonians? Paul goes to them and starts preaching. And while the apostle was preaching, they closed their Bibles and said, you know what, we don't need to worry about false teaching. He's going to tell us the truth no matter what. Is that what the Bereans did? Speaking of the Bereans, now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The Bereans understood that avoiding false teachers is only possible is if you study the Scriptures for yourself, if you're able to interpret it yourself. And it's impossible for you to study the Scriptures rightly if you don't have a good, sound hermeneutic. Bad hermeneutics is the source of all sorts of confusion. Because when false teachers want to deceive you, you know what they'll do? They'll tell you to open your Bible, and they'll take you to a passage of Scripture. They'll just twist it. They'll put enough truth in there, it sounds right. Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Pope Francis, T.D. Jakes, Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell, even Satan, when he tempted Jesus, pointed to Scripture. And they used Scripture to justify their false teaching. That's how they hide their lies, is with a bad hermeneutic. Edward White There is no folly, no God-dishonoring theology, no iniquity, no sacerdotal puerility for which chapter and verse may not be cited by an enslaved intelligence. And under these circumstances, it is impossible to express in adequate terms the importance of a correct estimate and exposition of the Bible. Every false teacher out there uses bad hermeneutics and twists the text of Scripture. Every single one of them. And not just the heretics. Confusion is brought into the church when otherwise faithful men of God abandon a right hermeneutic. Most theological differences that you know about between churches today are the result of one thing, hermeneutics. Take, for instance, eschatology. The three predominant views on the end times, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism, the difference between them is one thing, your hermeneutic, how you interpret the text. And if we all three would interpret the text the same way, we would all come to the same conclusion. Or um, the issue of justification. Did you know the difference between us and the Roman Catholic Church is a matter of interpretation? 
on justification? Because they would say, we have evidence that works are part of salvation, that you have to do good works in order to be saved, in order to be justified. They would point to James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. See, you Protestants teaching faith alone, you're wrong. Sounds good, doesn't it? If you don't know good hermeneutics, you won't be able to tell them why they're wrong. And that'll silence you in a heartbeat because they just twisted that text on you really badly. That's not what that text is talking about. If we can't agree on hermeneutics, if we can't agree on how to come to the right meaning of the text, we will never agree on the doctrines in this church. And there won't be any growth. You'd spend all your time debating the text. I think the text means this. No, I think it means that. No, I think it means this. You want to fix that? Learn hermeneutics. Learn how to interpret the text correctly. And if you want to see what happens when people abandon a hermeneutic, just look around America. Look at all the churches out there, so-called churches. Some of them, you have two ends of the spectrum. Some of them, you have Pharisees abusing sheep. The Pharisaical pastor doesn't understand the Scriptures. He doesn't use the right hermeneutic. He forces a whole bunch of rules and regulations on his congregation that are not found in Scripture, that is, he has no authority to force. And the congregation doesn't have any understanding of a right hermeneutic, and therefore they remain enslaved and beholden to their religious master. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have clowns entertaining goats. And they entertain a bunch of goats, and those goats are unconverted souls, worshiping a false god, believing they are saved, but on, on their way to hell. Just turn on some of the TV preachers. You'll see who I'm talking about. Neither one, the clown nor the goat in the pew, practices or understands hermeneutics. You shouldn't be like that. You need right hermeneutics. Number four, right hermeneutics are necessary for sanctification and spiritual growth. Scriptures, when correctly interpreted, give us the knowledge necessary for salvation. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You need the Scriptures in order for people to be saved, in order for people to come to saving faith. And once you are a believer, it is the Scriptures, a right understanding of the Scriptures, that helps you grow. 1 Peter 2, 2, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Notice it says pure milk. It's only pure when you interpret it correctly. And it's not mixed with people's opinions and their fabrications. And the Christian life isn't an easy one. While they're growing, they're going to have difficult times. You need the Scriptures for an encouragement. God has given you the Scriptures to encourage you when times are difficult. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. You're going through a rough time in life? Open up the Scriptures and be encouraged by them. The psalmist in Psalm 119 found repeated encouragement in the Scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 25, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Revive here refers literally to giving me my life back. Renewing my spiritual life. When he feels spiritually dead and separated from God, where does he run? He runs right back to the text of Scripture. What good is encouragement if it's not based in the truth? How is it encouraging to be told lies and to believe lies? And if you're practicing a bad hermeneutic, you're not getting the truth. 
What good is it when an unbeliever interprets the Bible to say that everyone is going to heaven, even if they reject Christ? Is that an encouragement? No, that is the result of a bad hermeneutic. They're only an encouragement when they are understood correctly. Truth encourages, lies deceive. You have to have a right understanding of the text. And when you rightly understand the text, the scriptures are a means of sanctification. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That truth is exposed to you when you interpret it correctly. Psalm, 19, uh, Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. But if you don't have the right meaning of the text, it won't sanctify. Bernard Rahm, upon the correct interpretation of the Bible, rests our doctrine of salvation, of sanctification, of eschatology, and of Christian living. Every doctrine you believe in the Christian faith is dependent upon your right understanding and interpretation of the text. Every means that we talk about for you to be sanctified is dependent upon a right understanding of the text. And if your understanding of the text is wrong, your understanding of how to be sanctified will also be wrong. Your understanding of how to grow will be wrong. Uh, Terry Milton again, For if ever the divinely appointed ministry of reconciliation accomplishes the perfecting of the saints and the building up of the body of Christ so as to bring all the attainment of the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, it must be done by a correct interpretation and efficient use of the Word of God. You cannot grow in holiness and in sanctification with a bad hermeneutic. It's impossible. It's also impossible for a local church to be unified in its belief, to grow together with bad hermeneutics. Because we are unified by what? Our affection for the local body? No, we're unified by our belief. Last one. Right hermeneutics are necessary for scriptural faithfulness. That is to say, scriptures are replete with warnings that you must handle the scriptures correctly and accurately. And this is done by not only explicit statements, but this is also done through example. I want to show you one. This is the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. This passage is often used as a justification for the, the idea that you can't interpret the text. I've heard Catholics tell me this. We need, the, we need the Catholic Church and the Magisterium. Look at the Ethiopian eunuch. That's not what this passage is talking about. Let me show you. The eunuch is spotted by Philip, Acts 8, verse 27 and 28. Philip sees an Ethiopian eunuch. He's riding in a chariot. The eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. Luke actually cites that passage, uh, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. And the Spirit tells Philip, hey, catch up to the chariot and join him. And so Philip does what he's told. Acts 8, verse 30, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? Now, first thing I want you to note, Luke believes that Isaiah wrote the book of Isaiah. There's a lot of people who tell you Isaiah did not write all of Isaiah. It's not what Luke said. But notice the question he asks. Philip gets to the eunuch and says, do you understand what you are reading? This is a key question. He didn't ask the eunuch, are you able to read? He asked the eunuch, are you able to interpret? Do you understand the passage? And the eunuch responds, verse 31. And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is where people say, see, 
you can't interpret the scriptures without some guide, without someone coming along and telling you what it means. But that's not what the eunuch is saying here. The eunuch here recognizes he's missing information. He's missing information that he needs to be able to understand the passage. He's not saying, I don't understand anything of what I read, and what he, well, the verse I'm going to show you in a minute will prove that. But there's a specific aspect of this text that I don't understand because I'm missing some information. Look at verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you earnestly, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? The eunuch understood the passage. And he understood that this passage was speaking of a suffering servant. It was speaking of a person. What he didn't understand was who the person was. I know it's a suffering servant. I know he's going to suffer. I know the, the, some of the context of why he's going to suffer, but the passage doesn't tell me who this person is. Philip, do you know? Notice he says, I ask you earnestly, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? At that time, there were four views on the suffering servant. One of them said it was Isaiah himself, which you see at the end of that verse, of himself or someone else. One said that Isaiah 53 was talking about the nation of Israel, the whole body of people. Another said it was talking about the righteous remnant of Israel, a select group of Israel was the suffering servant. And the final view said that it was the Messiah. This eunuch read this text from Isaiah 53, and he had one question. Who? He understood everything else in the passage. But you notice what the eunuch didn't do. He didn't supply his own meaning. You know, he didn't take the mystical approach and say, well, this passage is talking about me and my suffering, and I'm just going to take all the principles and apply them to me. Because I'm a eunuch, and, you know, eunuchs today are looked down upon, and we're oppressed, and we suffer a lot. He didn't take an allegorical meaning and say, well, this represents something else. He didn't take the rationalistic approach and say, well, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, and it doesn't seem rational to me, so this text can't be true. He assumed the text was true. He submitted himself to the one meaning of the text and said, I don't understand who this text is talking about. Who is this author trying to point me to? Philip gives him the answer. And you guys know the rest of the story. He comes to saving faith, he believes, and he's baptized. The eunuch practiced good hermeneutics. He believed in one meaning. The meaning of the text is what the author intended. The necessity of a right hermeneutic is also explicitly commanded for those who desire to be faithful. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We are to be diligent. That is, we are to be conscientious in discharging an obligation. And this is where some people say, yeah, but Frank, Paul's writing to Timothy, and Timothy was a pastor, and I'm not a pastor, so this doesn't apply to me. Well, in the immediate context, yes, he's talking to a guy who's in pastoral ministry. How many parents do we have in the room? You guys teach your children the Bible? You need to be diligent. You need to be diligent in how you handle the text of Scripture because you are teaching someone else what the Bible says. And you are to be diligent what? You are to be diligent to present yourself to God. God is the one who will judge how you handle the text. God is the one who will judge whether or not you got it right. 
whether you applied it correctly to your children's lives, whether you applied it correctly to your own life, because on Judgment Day, you're not going to be able to say, well, Lord, I only did that because my pastor told me that's what the Bible means. And God's going to go, oh, well, then that's okay. Never mind. He's going to hold you responsible for how you apply the text to your life. You want to be faithful? You need good hermeneutics. You are to be diligent to present yourself before God as approved. Approved means to be proven by testing. You've demonstrated yourself that you are genuine. You take every effort and special care that when you stand before God, he will say, well done. You will be approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Did you know studying the Bible is hard work? Right hermeneutics is hard. That's why so few people actually do it. It takes effort. It's much easier just to read whatever meaning you want into the text. This word workman refers to uh, an agricultural laborer, someone who's actually doing some hard work. And you are to work hard so that you will not have to be ashamed, that you will not be embarrassed when you stand before God on Judgment Day for how you handled the text. Peter talks about those who distort the word. Chapter 3, verse 16, as also in all his letters, speaking of Paul, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. I just want to point out one thing. Notice he's talking about people who are untaught. They don't know. They've never learned how to interpret the scriptures. And he says, the untaught and unstable distort. It's not a minor thing to get it wrong. They twist the scriptures in their ignorance, but ignorance here is no excuse. Look at the end of that verse. They do it to what? Their own destruction. Getting it right is absolutely vital. You've got to get this right. All right, it's 10.01. If you have questions, I'll be happy to see you afterwards. Come on up and ask me your questions. Let me pray for us, and I'm going to let you go. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the local church, this ability to come together to fellowship with one another. We do ask that you would help us uh, to be workmen who do not need to be ashamed, that you would help us, that you would illuminate our minds and guide us by your spirit, that we could rightly handle the truth of your word, that we would get it right when we come to the text, and that you would be glorified and praised. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.